Dr. Larry Berman is a professor of political science here at UC Davis. He divides his time between Davis and Washington, D.C. Dr. Berman has authored three well-received books on Vietnam, including No Peace, No Honor, Nixon, Kissinger, and Betrayal in Vietnam. His research has taken him to Vietnam on numerous occasions. At a party during one visit in 2001, Chance placed Dr. Berman across the table from an elderly Vietnamese man who noted with delight that he'd studied journalism in California in the 50s. The man was familiar with Davis, he said, having visited while interning at the Sacramento Bee. His knowledge of Vietnam was encyclopedic, leading Dr. Berman to guess early on that his dinner companion might be Pham Soon An, a journalist who had worked for Reuters and Time magazine while all the while spying for the North Vietnamese communists. Dr. Berman befriended Pham Soon An and made many trips to Vietnam to learn what he might from him. The result is the book, Perfect Spy, The Incredible Double Life of Pham Soon An, Time magazine reporter and Vietnamese communist agent. Dr. Berman's much in demand for a current uh, book tour. He's appeared on National Public Radio with Scott Simon earlier this month, and we're very pleased to have him join us today. Dr. Larry Berman, welcome to Radio Parallax. I'm delighted to be here. Reporter David Lamb said, read Larry Berman's well-researched book and you'll understand why victory was never truly within the United States' reach. The Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese were well-known for their good intelligence, so my first question is, how key was Pham Soon An to the victory of the forces he worked for? He was instrumental to the victory of the communists, uh, without a doubt. He received four special medals or exploit medals, uh, but he was most valuable, and he was promoted to the rank of general and made a hero of the revolution primarily for his initial contributions at the early stage of the war in the early 1960s when the communist Vietnamese were literally aghast at two things. First of all, that this large country, this great country, the United States of America, was clearly going to be sending large numbers of troops to small Vietnam 9,000 miles away to uh, somehow fight for democracy or something, whatever the Vietnamese thought we were doing. And uh, they had also no understanding of our, of our military strategy. What would the Americans be doing? The helicopters and our great equipment were doing extraordinary damage. And it was on early reports on counterinsurgency uh, and recommendations on how to fight the Americans, particularly the helicopters in 1962 and 1963, which were instrumental in allowing the military planners in Hanoi to devise a counter strategy to combat U.S. forces. General Giap was so excited after reading on reports that he said, we are now in the Americans' war room. And General Giap, of course, was the supreme commander of communist forces in Vietnam. The, the strategist Sun Tzu called spies the most important assets that a military force can have. Um, compared to other notable spies of the 20th century, how would you say that Pham Soon An compares? I think he was one of the greatest spies of the 20th century, primarily because to be an effective spy, one needs to have a perfect cover, and An had the perfect cover, both as a journalist, but also as a friend of Americans, and it was something that the communists had really cultivated uh, as early as 1955-56, when the decision was really made to send On to study in America, and send to California, so that he can learn all he could about the Americans, and one of the remarkable things about An's effectiveness is how well he blended in, not only with the Americans, because uh, someone might say, well, it was easy to fool, let's say, uh, 
you know, someone at Orange Coast College where he was a student. Uh, but it was more difficult to fool a David Halberstam or a Neil Sheehan or a Stanley Carno, his closest friends. But he also became close friends with the legendary CIA operatives of the day, people like William Colby and uh, Edward Lansdale and Lucius Conin. And, of course, he also fooled uh, all of the South Vietnamese leaders, uh, some of whom were his closest friends. So the effectiveness of his cover, I think, makes him the, I consider him to be one of the great spies of the 20th century. Well, in reading the book, Dr. Berman, I was quite—I was quite struck by the fact that that Ahn was was picked by the communists to learn about Americans via a cover of journalism. And yet, of course, as you say, he was also his pursuit of the trade was also fostered by Edward uh, Lansdale. Lansdale helped Ahn get a scholarship from the Asia Foundation, a CIA undertaking. It just—it seems quite ironic that both sides wanted the same thing from uh, from Pham Soon Ahn. Right, and as you know, at the end of the book, I do speculate about whether or not he was actually a triple agent, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that a little. But imagine the foresight of the Vietnamese communists to recognize in 1957 that America was coming. In other words, we had replaced the French in terms of money and equipment. The French had been defeated in 1954 at the MBM Fu, and all people like An wanted. I view On in my book as a Vietnamese nationalist. I hardly ever use the term communist because, of course, when he joined the Communist Party, it was really for him a nationalist movement. And what that meant for him was he only wanted no foreign armies, the Japanese, the French, the Chinese, no one in Vietnam. This was for the Vietnamese to decide their future on their own. And imagine the foresight in 57 for them to realize that America was coming, and they had to prepare for this. They had no idea who the Americans were. They had no idea uh, how they would combat uh, the American forces. And so they turned to Pham Soon An. And why did they turn to Pham Soon An? Because he was one of the few people who spoke English. Uh, and uh, he, he had learned English from uh, missionaries in Vietnam. He was a brilliant man, a, a high school dropout, but a brilliant man who had a real propensity for two subjects, mathematics and languages. And uh, they sent him to the United States, but he needed a sponsor. And who would be the sponsor? The American CIA, uh, uh, General Edward Lansdale, who liked Don so much in Vietnam that he thought here was this great anti-communist that uh, could go to the United States, learn our values, come back and help fight communism. But just, of course, there was all, just imagine the, the, the extraordinary mental discipline the, that Ahn had, even at this young age, to be able to hide his real mission from everybody else. That, I think, is a remarkable story. So you're at a dinner party. This legendary spy, uh, by chance, is across the table from you. He finds out you're a historian with an interest in the Vietnam War. What hooked him in, in the things you were writing about uh, that got him interested in what you were up to? That's a great question, and actually I'll never forget this evening because it was the first night I met on. Uh, I was finishing my book, No Peace, No Honor, Nixon, Kissinger, and Betrayal in Vietnam, which was really a book about the secret Paris negotiations between Henry Kissinger and Le Duc Thuy, uh, and for both of whom would, re would, would receive the Nobel Prize, uh, but only Kissinger would accept it uh, because uh, Le Duc Thuy had announced that he would not accept it because no peace had really come to Vietnam. And my book was very critical of those negotiations, but... I had still had a lot of questions, and a lot of documents were still classified. And An asked me at dinner, what are you working on? And I told him, and I clearly demonstrated to him that I've been working on this book for several years. I had intimate details of conversations. And An said, you know, I know a lot about those conversations. Uh, I could be a, a source to you. Why don't we have breakfast, you know, tomorrow and uh, or lunch? And uh, we met the next day, and actually I, I stayed. I changed my entire trip. 
and I stayed in Saigon for five days. We met for five or six hours a day, and he took me through his knowledge about what had happened in the secret negotiations between Le Ducteau and Henry Kissinger. So he became a source of mine for that book. And then when the book was published, I, of course, gave him a copy, and he read it very carefully, and then he asked me to see my other two books. Uh, and that, I think, created in him a great respect for my own scholarship. And he did not want someone who knew him during the war to write about his story. He wanted someone who had been removed, and that, I think, was a plus for me. But he also trusted me based upon my previous book. So that's, that's our story, actually. Did he tell you things early on that you knew right away, like, wow, that's a surprise? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. But he told me two or three things about uh, the Kissinger negotiations and uh, that were, I put two of, two of the three I was able to put in my book, No Peace, No Honor, primarily because I was able to find a second attribution for it. I didn't want to put it in just based upon what a communist spy had told me, because that would open me up to, I think, fair criticism that I had just been spun by somebody. Uh, but he told me two things, particularly on this very crucial period in October 1972 that I was in later able to corroborate with the South Vietnamese, uh, and uh, that allowed for the book to have the impact that it did. And so I, I understood right away that this was a guy who had more knowledge about the war and about the Americans and the Vietnamese and what had happened than anyone I had met in my 30 years in this profession. And I just became so interested in pursuing not only his story, but anything else that he could tell me about the war. And it was really pretty clear that he had a lot. But as I say in the book, he also took a lot with him to his grave because, you know, he did draw a line in a certain place where he wasn't going to tell me everything, but he told me enough to really allow me to write the book. What did he tell you that you couldn't corroborate 100% that you might suspect he took to, to, to the grave, a secret? There's two parts of that story. There are those things that he, he stopped talking, that when I'd ask him a question, he just didn't answer. And on that, I can only speculate what he, what he was hiding. And I think a lot of that had to do with uh, things that he did during the Tet Offensive of 1968, where he really he received a special medal and citation for his role in identifying all of the infiltration sites for the communist forces to come into Vietnam and in 1968, into, into Saigon in 1968, and, and uh, Americans, were, Americans were killed during this period, and, and indeed his direct supervisor took responsibility for killing those Americans, and An really drew the line there. He did not want to talk about that, and I, I can only speculate as to why, because in the book I do discuss that I, you know, he has a lot of blood on his hands, uh, but uh, he tried to always sidestep that, so that's one thing uh, that... I think it's important, but the most, I think the things that he really took to the grave with him, and he did talk to me a little about, was what happened in 1975, which is as Saigon fell, I mean, he really worked to get a lot of people out on the South, that is, you know, his country's enemy, uh, and uh, he worked tirelessly to get these people out because he knew when the communists got there, uh, these people would be tortured and then killed. And he saved the lives of many people, including this Dr. Twin, who I talk about quite, I have a large section in the book about, and that created a lot of problems for Ron after the war. And I think he'll, he, he, he drew the line on just how far he wanted to talk about that, because that would have brought us into a conversation about whether or not he was working for three sides. I was struck, sir, in reading your book, uh, talking about 1975, about how the North Vietnamese pushed to move against the Saigon government after the peace accords. 
It appears it was in no small part due to the fact that Ahn analyzed uh, the fact that of what America was likely to do, and he, he told the people in North, they're not going to re-enter the conflict once the forces pulled out. So, in essence, his analysis was critical to the finishing off of the two government. Does historians really realize his role in this? No one knew his role in this until, uh, until I started really writing about this. And this is really crucial, actually, because... Uh, An was Vietnam's American expert, and this is the only time, as you know from reading the book, this is the only time in every any report that he ever sent up that the Politburo challenged him. They 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 were not sure, and An understood the American temperament so well, but he also understood the South Vietnamese, and he sent up a report saying, "No, you can begin this this assault on on, on Saigon, really almost two years before." anyone ever thought it would occur because the Americans are not coming back, they're not going to bomb, Nixon's got this problem with Watergate, he can't fight two constitutional battles. Ahn was so astute about this and he sent yeah. this complete report up. His report was so detailed that he discussed Watergate, the impact of Watergate on Nixon, and explained to his communist uh, boss, bosses in, in Hanoi why Nixon could not fight a constitutional battle over war powers because he was fighting one over to save his presidency. And this is just a remarkable uh, story as the way, way I related it to me. And indeed, he received his final citation uh, for his contributions in the victory of the Americans in the, in the American War, as they call it, uh, for, the, for that. And the irony, of course, is that he did all of that, and as these communist troops marched into Saigon, uh, or what would soon be Ho Chi Minh City on April 30th, 1975, An had to go into hiding. And he had to go into hiding because he was only known by everyone as the Time Magazine reporter and correspondent, friend of the Americans, friend of the CIA, and any of these troops coming in would have just shot him on the spot if because no one would believe he was uh, a communist agent. What was he going to say? As I, as I explained in the book, I think one of the funniest sequences in the book were on says to me, what am I going to tell these soldiers as they walk in? Hey, it's me, Pham Sunan. I've been a double agent for you know <laughs> 20 years, and I've been providing all these reports. And then they would ask me where my wife and children are, and I would say, oh, I evacuated them to the United States. They would shoot me right there on the spot uh, as, a, as a crazy man. So he was in a very precarious situation. Shoot him and then have his dogs for dinner. Is, I guess how right, he, he was it. renowned as a great. Uh, yeah. He was renowned all throughout uh, Saigon as uh, as the best dog trainer, which is also part of his his cover. But his cover was so good. I mean, just think about this. His cover was so good that he his he evacuated his wife and family to the United States. They went to Camp Pendleton. They ended up in L.A. Then they flew from L.A. to Virginia, and they settled in with the anti-communist refugee community, which today makes the backbone of not only uh, uh, Arlington, uh, Virginia, and Alexandria, and, uh, but also, of course, Westminster, California, Orange County, California. And they were part of that community, and he sent them there because he was fearful that they also would be killed, but also it would protect him. And and no one knew if they would ever see each other. And a lot of thought was given to whether or not An should actually be sent to the United States to continue his spying, but that was overruled in the Politburo. Once he had a report, how did he get it up to the people that wanted it up in the north? Yeah, well, you know, we talk about all our sophisticated equipment and everything like that. And in my book, I describe the courier system that worked effectively for 15 years. Uh, An was very superstitious. He's uh, a Virgo, uh, the only star. This is An now talking about this. Uh, the only uh, star uh, protected by 
by women, goddesses. And he believed his life was protected by women, and therefore he insisted on having a woman courier, and only one woman courier. And the way this would work is, An would get these documents uh, during the day. Uh, he would bring them home at night, and when his children were asleep, he and his wife, his wife worked with him, she would photograph the documents, and he would uh, read them and then write reports, analytical reports, based upon the content of these military documents. And then they, and he would do them in invisible ink, actually, and he showed me how he did that. And then once the ink evaporated on this blank paper, uh, he would take traditional Vietnamese uh, rolls, we could might say egg rolls, for example, uh, and in the egg rolls, his wife would put the film canister, and they would wrap the egg rolls in blank paper, but it really wasn't blank. It was just a visible ink, which were the complete reports. Uh, and the next morning, An would carry about five or six of these uh, rolls wrapped up, four or five of which contained film canisters, and go to the busy Saigon market where he would meet his courier, a woman by the name of Winti Ba, who I spent quite a bit of time with interviewing her in, uh, in Saigon. Uh, she's today over 90 years old. He had personally selected her as his courier. And they would have a conversation. He would say, are you hungry? She would say yes, and he would give her one roll to try. She would try it, and she would like it. This was not a secret report roll, but just a regular roll. And then he would say, well, maybe you want some more. And he would pass them to her, and then she would carry them out to the communist base in Kuchi. And then eventually it would take two weeks, but the reports would eventually make it by courier all the way to Hanoi. Uh, and uh, sometimes it was so important that they would be sent by Morse code, but the film was always carried by courier. And uh, it's a remarkable system, two people. And what makes the story even more amazing is that his courier, Winti Ba, was illiterate. Uh, she could not read, which protected her. Uh, also, from, if she had ever gotten caught, she would never know what was in there. She would be killed, but she, even if she was tortured, she wouldn't have any idea what was in the reports. So she was an illiterate uh, courier, uh, and uh, on was this uh, high school dropout who had this extraordinarily sophisticated mind, and together I think they made one of the great spy teams in history. Let's return back to that issue of, of, of double agent versus triple agent. Uh, I was really curious when I read the book to know that uh, that Ahn knew William Colby pretty well. Colby developed what was called the Strategic Hamlet Program of Forced Resettlements in Vietnam. It was a spectacular failure. It backfired, alienated the population, and aided the Viet Cong. One suspects Ahn must have known it was a really bad idea, which helped the communists. So my question is, did, did he argue that it was bad, or did he let it go, or... How did that go down? Uh, without a doubt, on uh, communicated to his bosses in Hanoi the weaknesses of the strategic handling program. He talked to me about it all the time. For example, on believed that the strategic handling program could be effective if the Americans had gone very slow. But the problem was that they were going very fast, and they were trying to move much too quickly. And An reported all of this to Hanoi, and indeed, um, uh, he, while he never received a medal for this, several of the people I interviewed told me his reports on the strategic Hamlet program were absolutely essential. Now, I happen to believe, I cannot prove this, but I certainly believe that An was also an informant for the CIA, but for the CIA... His job would have been to report on the inner workings of the South Vietnamese government, and therefore 
you can imagine the irony here. I mean, one can only guess what kind of reports An might have given to the CIA if he was a CIA agent, but it's it's inconceivable that An was not talking to CIA agents about what was going on in, in, in the Saigon government. I'll never be able to prove that. An always laughed and said, well, that's what everyone in Vietnam thought also after the war, and that's why I got into so much trouble, because certainly after the war, the, the communist Vietnamese thought that he had to have had too many friends, close friends, and he must have been working for someone else, because you couldn't have survived this long without being protected. The other, the other incident that really stunned me in, in reading your book was uh, uh, October 3rd, 71. They had an election in Vietnam. Uh, Nguyen Van Tru ran unopposed, which caused, I think, everyone to sort of think, what a disgusting development. We're fighting for democracy, and the president is unopposed. Yet you reveal in the book that uh, General Big Min was thinking about challenging too, and, and An talked him out of it. You know, I'm so glad you noticed that. You're the, you know, in this entire book tour, you're the first person to ask me this question. I think it's such a important historical points. That's great that uh, you're asking me about this. Absolutely. On, one of An's best friends was Big Min, General Big Min, who was a neutralist uh, and wanted to run. And, uh, and this is this election where there were originally going to be three candidates. Uh, when Cao Ki had already pulled out. Uh, and, uh, uh, and An knew that, he, I mean, An, as An told me, I wanted to get Big Min not to run because the best way to embarrass the United States was to have a one-man election, which was a joke about democracy. Uh, so I told uh, big men that, uh, that, that if he ran, the Americans would use him as a carpet. They would just walk, uh, walk all over him. And, that's ex- and big men, as a result of that, did pull out. And I spoke to three people who corroborated that story for me. Big man has uh, passed away, but I got very close to people who knew him, and they all said yes, he and On were very close, and, and Big Man had told people that On was instrumental in talking him out of that. So whose side was On on when he did that? I think when he talked Big Man out, uh-huh. he, was on the, he was on the communist side, because the best way to sort of create a public awareness that democracy is not about a one-person election is, is to get all the opposition to pull out. After Vietnam uh, reunited, uh, Pham Son was treated as a hero, but yet you report in the book he seemed to have had some regrets about how it seemed that American influence was being replaced by Russian and the lack of an open society was, was troubling to him, particularly in regards to the fact that journalism, as he knew it, was no longer being practiced. Did he get over that in the end? He never really got over it, and that's really... You see, two things happened to An in his life that are really crucial. One is the time he spent in the United States. He fell in love with our system. Now imagine this, someone on a mission as a spy comes here, and of all places, like they didn't pluck on into you know, Leavenworth, Kansas, or Buffalo, New York, or, or, or you know, Podunk U. They sent him to Casa Mesa, California. You know, the sun shines every day, right? He saw an ocean, the sun came up, he, he learned to surf, he learned to go on sailboats, he, he went to luau's, he got a girlfriend, and he fell in love with California and the college life from 57 to 59. A lot of people listening to this show can relate to this. So we have this communist agent being sent to America uh, to, on a mission, and they pluck him down and, you know, in, in, you know, in Orange County, and, and he falls in love with California, and then he drives across the United States. He interns in the United Nations. He interns in the Sacramento Bee. 
He has a picture taken of him with the governor of the state of California, Edmund G. Pat Brown, in which Ahn is identified as the most promising anti-communist journalist in America, going to go back and fight communists. And this cover is set, but inside of him, he's saying to himself, because he has no idea that one day half a million Americans are going to invade his country, defoliate his jungles, B-52 attacks. It's inconceivable to him. I mean, as he said to me, he goes, you could have never told me this. I thought maybe they send a few thousand people, we'd have a little battle somewhere, and it would be over, you know? But never what the American commitment became. So in his mind, you know, all he thinks about is, I can't wait till this thing's over. You know, I'm going to do my mission, I'm going to spy, I'm going to do what I'm told to do, and then when the war's over, I'm coming back to California. I want to see the United States. This is a great country. And he always thought that in Vietnam, after the war, there would be some sort of progressive, you know, not a pure democracy, so to speak, but it would be different than what it became. But the war went on so long, it became a terrible war, the retribution became so great, the American involvement became so great, that in the end, in 1975, the new regime trusted no one. And here was on. finally, when people found out who he was, on says, uh, uh, wait, these Americans are great people, you know, uh, and he got in a lot of trouble for that. He was sent to re-education, he was put under house arrest for eight years, and then, to really come back to your original question, but I, by way of background I wanted to give all this, which was, is that, you know, these two countries uh, reconciled. These two countries he loved so much, his native homeland, Vietnam, and the United States, uh, had reconciled. Uh, and while he he was really negative about the fact that Vietnam had a restrictive government, didn't practice a free press, he did believe that the future was only good for these two countries. Eventually, he thinks reform will come to Vietnam. So you think in the in the end he was he died satisfied that that America and and Vietnam, the two nations he knew, uh, had reconciled. Well, he told me, as I say in the book, I can die happy now because my two loves, these two countries have reconciled. And as you know, just a few months after he died, his eldest son, who he was so close to, his young man by, who has the same name, on, who had also studied journalism in North Carolina uh, and then went to Duke University Law School, served as the official translator during President Bush's visit to Vietnam uh, in uh, 2006. And this to on would have been, you know, the, the perfect ending of, of, of the reconciliation process. Well, just in closing, Dr. Berman, I have to say the supreme irony maybe of, of your book really struck me was that you described in the late 50s, Pham Sunan is the only Vietnamese person possibly in, in Orange County. And when, when I went to medical school in, in Orange County in the late 70s, early 80s, the concept that there were no Vietnamese is amazing. And, and yet so, and so many of them were in Orange County as a direct result of what happened at the end of the war. It's just, it's just amazing to me. You know that uh, I was in Westminster uh, a couple of weeks, actually two weeks ago, uh, the heart of you know, basically Little Saigon, and I gave a talk on my book, and everyone in the audience, and there were a couple hundred people in the audience, they all said that's, you know, An was probably the first Vietnamese, I, in my book I write he was the first, but I'm waiting for someone to challenge that, and no one has, and amongst this entire Vietnamese audience, everyone said yes, he was the first, and then someone said, and what an irony, the first Vietnamese in Orange County was a communist agent. <laughs> you couldn't make that up if you tried. <laughs> you, you couldn't. The book is The Incredible Double Life of Pham Soon An, Time Magazine reporter and Vietnamese communist agent. We've been speaking with Dr. Larry Berman, professor of political science here at UC Davis, who will be appearing, I guess, next month on the 16th of June at the Avid Reader. 
here in downtown Davis. Uh, that's right, and also I'll just give a plug. There is a web page for the book. Anyone who wants to see pictures of Ahn and videos and also get some interest, uh, anything about Famsun Ahn and also espionage for the book, it's just LarryBermanPerfectSpy.com, and uh, they could go there and learn quite a bit about uh, Ahn, see some pictures from his time in California and elsewhere, and as I say, some videos of Ahn from uh, various periods in his life. All right. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you well, took the time to read it. I appreciate your feedback as well, and I will. Thanks. Look forward to meeting you. All righty. Okay. Take, Take care. care. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye.